All right, uh, if we could, let's go ahead and open with prayer, and then we'll kick it off with someone, hopefully, who will be willing to share their testimony <coughs> as we start. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the time to study your word. I pray that, especially tonight, that you would help me to be clear as I communicate, and that you would help us as we um, walk through the book of Ephesians attempting to do all of that in one night, that you would help it to be a profitable time, that we would see uh, the beauty, the glory of your church, that we would see our place in it, that we would see how it helps us in our progressive sanctification. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So would anybody be willing to share tonight your testimony? Five minutes or less. Ted? Yeah. Um, like a lot of people, I was uh, I, I went to church from the time I was uh, an infant, and my family was one of those families that uh, every time the door was open, we were in church. Uh, didn't matter what it was for, special meetings, Sunday morning, Sunday night, we were always in church. So it's I'm one of the Christians that I've been around you know, the Bible and church and Christianity all my life, but that didn't make me saved. Um, uh, probably around the time I was uh, eight or nine, I can remember in my bedroom with my dad. Uh, I had asked my dad several times about getting saved, and he seemed to kind of put me off. And so finally, I told him one night, "Dad, I, I need I need to get saved." And so my dad and I prayed, and um, I asked the Lord into my heart. Um, a year or so later, when the age limit was right in church, I got baptized. Uh, and my, my Christian life has been one of uh, a lot of ups and downs. As, uh, uh, as a young man, I wasn't real focused on um, being the right kind of Christian. And not that I got into anything bad like drugs or you know stuff like that. I just wasn't uh, really living for the Lord like I should. And it was a Father's Day weekend before Troy was born uh, when I realized that, uh, you know, I'm going to be a father here in a few months. And uh, our pastor preached on uh, men taking charge of their home and being the leader in their home and being the godly example. And I thought, wow, you know, if I don't, if I don't really get on the ball here, I'm not going to be a very good father you know, for uh, our baby. So... Um, I remember going forward that Sunday night uh, and really talking seriously to the Lord about making sure that I knew I was saved, but making sure that I was going to do the right things in life then to be the kind of Christian I needed to be. Bible study, prayer, things like that. Um, still, after, what, 36 years? Um, 36 years uh, from that point, I'm still nowhere near where I should be. Uh, I'm not a perfect perfect dad, uh, perfect husband, um, uh, anything like that, uh, even though my daughter-in-law would probably disagree with you. But I, uh, <laughs> I didn't bring me a tootsie roll. I didn't bring But I know that the Lord is still working in my life. And um, now that I'm taking Social Security now, the other end of life is a lot closer than it was before. And uh, so that that's kind of sobering, but deep down in my heart, I know that whenever that time is going to come for me, that I know that I'll be with the Lord and um, 
not because of anything that I've done through my life, but because of what he did on the cross for me. And um, I just hope that uh, my life will be the kind of example that people will see and uh, say, uh, well, that guy really, really knew the Lord. Well, I would disagree. He was a pretty awesome dad. So, uh, and a godly one at that. And no, I'm learning, well, I'm learning. I know uh, that no parent is perfect because Valerie and I are not perfect parents, but there is none that is perfect. And he's been a pretty awesome one, as is my mom. So I've been blessed. My sister has been blessed to have them as, as parents. So, all right, let's review <clears throat> very quickly. Last week we looked at the discipline of prayer. We said that prayer is talking to God, and I had a very good conversation with Sally before, and I'm not going to dive into all of that uh, tonight again, but I will just reiterate, there's a key word that I'm going to say over and over again. Prayer is primarily talking to God, okay? So I'm not suggesting that there's never a time when... God communicates through His Spirit in other ways other than His inspired Word. However, I think that the primary way is via His Word. So He communicates to us through His Word. We communicate to God through prayer. And we said that believers should pray because it is powerful, it's commanded. Because of our relationship with God the Father, it's assumed. And there's a whole lot of good stuff that happens because of prayer. And then we said that prayer should be done in a certain way. It should be done continually. We should pray without ceasing, as the KJV says. It should be done according to God's will. It should be done in faith. And it should be done, if it's according to God's will, and it's done in faith, we can come with boldness to the throne of grace because of Jesus. And we can come to that throne expecting to receive what we ask because we're asking according to God's will. So that moves us to the goal of uh, our lesson tonight, which is lesson eight. We're ending tonight the second set of lessons, and this set of lessons has been focused on our sanctification, our growth in the gospel of grace. So tonight we're going to discover what the church is and how it helps us grow, and we're going to do that from the book of Ephesians. So we're going to attempt to discover what the church is, how it helps us grow, and we're going to try to do that all from the book of Ephesians. Now, before we dive into this study, I have to confess that if you were to look at your book and you were to see the objectives in your book, you would think this could be a semester-long class. Oh, but wait. The third book of the Discovery series is that lesson expanded into an entire semester. So it was kind of a daunting task. (laughs) What in the world do you cover in a 45-minute to an hour class in the church when the church is this massive, massive thing and we could talk about all sorts of dynamics? So my attempt tonight is not going to, by any stretch of the imagination, answer fully what the church is, how it helps us grow. But I'm trying to limit our focus down to just the book of Ephesians. But before we even get to the book of Ephesians, there's a couple preliminary questions I have for you. Um, And I just skipped that all together. So 
Just to know that. So what is the church? If someone asked you to define what the church is, how would you define it? Hmm? Okay, it's a body of believers. Anybody else? That, I mean, that's that's right, and that's good. So, <laughs> could we add to it? Could we make it more specific? Or body of Christ. I'll give you my stab, and there's a million definitions you could find about the church. Here's one that I, I've used before. A diverse group of people unified into one body through Christ. A diverse group of people unified into one body through Christ. <clears throat> and when we get to Ephesians, we'll see the diversity of the body as well as the unity, all in a matter of 16 verses. But if your mind, like mine, goes to 1 Corinthians, I, I start thinking about how Paul uses illustrations of we are the body, and he uses literal, like, like you could almost hear Paul saying, well, you're the hand, you're the foot, you're the mouth, you're the nose, you're the ear. So there's a diversity within the unity and they're people that are united through Jesus Christ. So there's a common thing that we hold dear, and that's Jesus. So if that's the church, what's the mission of the church? <clears throat> what is its objective, its purpose, its aim? Why is it here? What is it doing? To spread the word of God so that others will be saved. Okay, to spread the word of God so others will be saved. Is it solely an evangelistic mission? No. So how would we, you're right, but how would we add to that to make it a more holistic mission? Because the church isn't just about evangelism. That's, that's a big part of it, but it's not the only thing. Making maturing disciples. What? Okay, to edify believers. So, as I'm going to steal from my dad's church's mission statement, it's to, to glorify God by making and maturing disciples who are becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ. And frankly, even though it's kind of wordy, it gets to the point. And, and it, it really shows and demonstrates the heart of what the mission of the church is. When you look at Matthew 28... Verses 19 and 20, it's kind of hard to argue. Go ye therefore into all nations, baptizing, and then teaching, right? So it's the making of disciples, that would be the evangelism, the maturing side would be, as Karen said, the edifying or uh, the, the fellowship, the, the discipleship. So the mission is the making and maturing of disciples who are becoming like Christ. So there's that aim of Christ-likeness. Remember when we talked about progressive sanctification? It's not just change. It's change towards something and away from something. It's change away from 
worldliness and change to Christ-likeness. So then why is it essential for us to have an active, enduring attachment to a local church? Why, uh, biblically speaking, or I hate to confuse you, but theologically speaking, why is it essential for us to have an enduring and active attachment to, if we're members of CBC, CBC, or Inner City, or wherever else you might be coming from? I'm not thinking benefits, like what's in it for us. Why must we as Christians be part of the church? Okay. Well, a body has many parts, so and we each have a different role, right? And God gives each one of us certain gifts. And he um, wants us to, he tells us to use those gifts um, in the body. And again, that glorifies God when we do that. Okay. And apart from being active and staying with a local church and being attached, you can't have that on your own, for example. You can't. can't. Right. True. Hey, what if I asked you, um, when God created you, when God created Adam and Eve, and then when you were born into this world, every human being is made in the image of God. Do you think that that has anything to do with this? Yes. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is three. There's not one. So, and how long have they existed as the three in one? Always. Eternally. Eternally. So there's been a unity within the Godhead, right? A relationship that has eternally existed for all time. So one of the reasons why it is essential for us as believers to be connected to the church is because we are created in the image of God. We are, as Pastor Ken likes to say, The image of God means that we are created to reflect God back to God. Well, what is God like? One of the the ways that, or one of the aspects of God is that he's a relational being, right? He's been in an eternal relationship in the the triunity. And because of that, we have been made in the image of God, and we are relational beings. We're not created for ourselves. If you were in the marriage series on Sunday... Ken alluded to this. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 22. And the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then he goes and he, Adam looks at all the different animals and doesn't find a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God put Adam in a deep sleep and took out of his rib and created woman, someone that corresponded to him because man reflects God back to God. He's a relational being. So we need each other. Even if you're not married, we need other people. We're not made to be in isolation. John 17, verses 20 through 23. If you want to jot that down and read it later, it talks 
greatly about the unity that God desires to have within his body. Jesus prays for us and says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe me through their message. So he's praying for us down the road that all of them may be one just as you and I are one. He's praying to the Father. So he's praying for unity of his people. There's a second theological or biblical reason why it is essential for for us to be part of this community of believers. We talked about it in week three when we talked about our position in Christ. Anyone think of the theological term we use to describe our position in Christ? It's really not that tricky. I've already given you two of the three words. So it's blank in Christ or blank with Christ. United. Yeah, our unity with Christ. Right? Because when we are united with Christ, we are also united with who? His people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verse, verses 12 and 13 say, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, right? <laughs> unity, diversity. And all the members of the body, though they, may are, they are many, they are one body. So also is Christ. And for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, we we're all made to drink of one spirit. So through the Holy Spirit of God, we were all baptized. We we're all united in Christ and in his church. So there's a the- those are two theological reasons why it's essential for us. Now, How does the local church contribute specifically then to a believer's spiritual growth? I know I'm flying because i got to get to Ephesians if we want to have any chance of finishing. Teaching of the Word. Okay? So sanctification comes through the truth of God's Word, right? So the fact that the Word is a centerpiece of the church when we gather, that would contribute to our sanctification. Worship. How does that contribute? We 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 do it together um, as a group of people, and in doing that, a lot of cases we see how other people worship. We uh, and as a group of people coming together uh, helps us grow. Okay, it's it's an essential part of our Christian life is the worship. Okay. I can't remember who mentioned it. I thought it was somewhere over here. Someone mentioned accountability. Hebrews talks about that we are to encourage each other daily so that we don't fall away from the faith. Can we say um, serving? Because I think when you serve, no, that's great. It's an awesome experience with kids or babies or wherever you're at. It's, I don't know, for me, anyways. Yeah. I mean, it, that ha- because when we're laying our lives down for the good of the other people, we're, I mean, when the dear people in the nursery take care of my kids, they're teaching them about Christ. Even if it's down to Betty in the nursery with Hadley, just loving on her, 
all the way up, in which now my kids worship and adore her, all the way, you know, to the teachers that are now, te- like Rachel Antonosian, who's teaching Caden lessons about the fruits of the Spirit, or Jamie is teaching him on Wednesday nights about the fruit of the Spirit. Well, that's that's service, right? Investing in, in other people. So the church is kind of like a rubber band. You think, that doesn't make any sense. But here's the thing, and here's the problem with having a class in one hour to try to describe the church. Because you see this thing? This is a big rubber band ball, and there's probably a couple hundred rubber bands in this little ball. The thing is that they're all intertwined. They're all connected, and all of them just mesh together to make one thing. Yet there's a couple hundred different rubber bands. And every person in here is part of the church and is a rubber band, but every aspect of the church, whether it's the singing, whether it's the preaching, whether it's the millions of ways we can serve other people, whether it's administering the ordinances, whether it's you name it, whether it's the fellowship around cafe community time, all of that's intertangled, right? Because you can't just look at one thing and say, oh, it's the word of God and compartmentalize it. So the word of God is the means of my sanctification. Well, yeah. But what about when Jim and I get together at lunch every, every week or so and we talk about the book of James together? Well, we're not meeting corporately on Sundays, but we're sitting there talking about God and his word and we're iron sharpening iron. Just like we all do with each other. And so it's this tangled web, so it's really hard to describe, but all of that combines to produce unity and to produce maturity. And all of it works together in this tangled web to make you who you are before God. So if we think about it that way, let's dive into the book of Ephesians. And I've got to limit this somehow. So we're going to limit our our study tonight as to what the church is, and how it contributes to our change, our sanctification. We're going to limit it to the book of Ephesians, but we're going to go through the whole thing. Oh, I saw that look, Wanda. It was a look. <laughs> was a total reaction. So, here we go. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 3 of chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, please open up to it. And here's the first point that I'd like to suggest. The church was God's sovereign design. And I'm going to give you big principle statements that cover a broad spectrum. This is not the only thing that we could ever understand about the church from Ephesians. But the first thing we're going to look at is that the church was God's sovereign design. Verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 4, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Verse 11, In him we were also chosen having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. Before the foundation of the world, God had this plan. 
God had this design before you were ever created. Before the, before the world was ever created. God had a plan. And it was his sovereign plan that he is predestined and that he is working out in conformity to his agenda, his will. The church was God's sovereign design. It wasn't an invention of man. So we can learn that from the opening uh, verses of Ephesians. And we go down to the next section in Ephesians, chapter 1, verse, verses 15 through 23. Hang on for a second. I've got to get to my notes. can't stand being tied to that podium. And we learn this, that the church is ruled by the exalted King Jesus. That the church is ruled by the exalted King Jesus. Look at verse 19. And this is the, at the end of Paul's prayer, he's praying for a number of virtues um, for the Ephesian believers. And he's saying that this incredibly great power is for us who believe. And he says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him or enthroned him at the right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the place of power and rule and intercession. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Verse 22. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So Christ is the head. He is the ruler. He is our authority. We have a new king, and it's no longer us. When we became Christians, we dethroned ourselves, and we became ruled by another, and that another is King Jesus, who has been enthroned, and who does reign and rule over his people. So what is the church? Christ is its king. It's his head. And it's a sovereign design of God. Number three. I'm sorry, yes, number three. Is the church is entered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The church is entered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The church is entered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. says in verse 1 of chapter 2 and describes all of us prior to coming to Christ that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That we were at the end of verse 3 by nature objects of God's wrath. Yikes. But what word does verse 4 start with? But God. But. But because of the great love of God God made us alive with Christ when we were dead in our transgressions and sin. It is by grace you have been saved. Verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Verse 9. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You are God's handiwork. You are God's masterpiece, is the point that it's making. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That's amazing. 
That's how we enter the church. How does anyone enter the church? It's not by works. It's not by status. It's not by birth. It's only by new birth. It's only by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Number four, the church is a place where enemies are united as God's family by God's spirit. The church is a place where enemies are united as God's family by God's spirit. That's the second half of chapter two. Listen to the language as you write. Paul here describes Jew and Gentile particularly Gentile, that they were separated from Christ, that they were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Another yikes. We're without a Savior. We're without a promise. We have no belonging. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. For through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners or strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. In him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Think about that for a second. The church is a place where black and white, or Hispanic and Chinese, where rich, where poor, where the opposite of opposites are saved by the same God, by the same Messiah, are given the same promises, the same privileges, the same benefits. Whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, whether you're slave or free, God takes enemies and makes them family. That's sweet. I think we're on number five. I didn't number these. I should have numbered these. Number five. Beginning chapter three. The church is the fulfillment of God's gracious promise to Abraham. The church is the fulfillment of God's gracious promise to Abraham. And you're probably wondering, what in the heck are you talking about? Well, God made a promise all the way back in the Old Testament, way back in Genesis, the first part, that through Abraham, God would send a seed, and through that seed, he would do what? He would bless all the nations. All the nations. Not just Abraham's family, right? But that he would bless all the nations. And what do we see happening in the church? The doors are opened up, right? This, this Messiah thing, this promise thing, all this, this, this belonging possession, it's not just for the Jew anymore. It's for all people. And so there's this barrier-destroying thing called the gospel 
that is the fulfillment of God's gracious promise to Abraham. Look, look with me at the beginning of chapter 3. Paul describes his ministry as a mystery numerous times. He says in verse 2 that there's this mystery that's been made known to him by revelation. Verse 4, he says the same thing, that now we have this mystery of Christ. Verse 5, which has not been made known. So what is this mystery thing? What is a mystery? It's not necessarily a mystery novel. Verse 5, which was not made known to people in other generations as it, as it now has been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery, verse 6, is that through the gospel, here's the mystery, that through the gospel this gen, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members, or members together of one body and shares together in the promise of Christ. Then go down to verse 9. God is making plain to everyone the administration of this mercy or mystery, which for ages kept, past was kept hidden in God who created all things. And so now, here's the intent, verse 10, that through the church, this true melting pot, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. You see, Israel's history, the Old Testament, is our history. And Israel's God is our God. And Israel's Messiah, Jesus, is our Messiah. Israel's promises are our promises. This is an amazing, amazing thing, that we are now part of the church. Lastly, in the first half of the book of Ephesians, we learn what the church is. So we learn that the church was God's sovereign design, that it's ruled by Christ it's entered by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That it's a place where enemies are united as family. That it's the fulfillment of this gracious promise of salvation to all the nations, starting all the way back. <clears throat> we have this promise that, that God makes, that I will be their father and they will be my people. And that, that promise bookends the entirety of scripture. And we see that being fulfilled in that 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 pressing on and moving forward in the church. And then we see at the end of chapter 3 that the church exists for the glory of God, its Father. Look at verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The church exists for the glory of God, its Father. But then we transition. So that's the church. And the church is a lot more than that, right? I mean, we could define the church with a lot more things, but we can at least walk away saying, okay, from the book of Ephesians, we can at least learn these six things. So now, my question is, is so how does the church help you and I grow? Look at chapter 4, verse 1. There's a transition that takes place. Paul says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. When he says then there, it's kind of like a therefore. What Paul is doing is he's saying, Hey, based on all that I have said, therefore or then, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Well, what's that calling that we've received? 
Okay. So we're in Christ and we are in the church, right? There's this calling and it's not just that we are in Christ, we're in Christ and in his church. We are in this new community of of believers that has been formed. This one new man, as Paul describes it earlier in the book of Ephesians. So what does this worthy life look like? Or maybe, how does the church help me live this worthy life? Well, here's one way. We are being matured and stabilized by the unity and diversity of the church. We are being matured and stabilized by the unity and diversity of the church. So how does the church contribute to my sanctification, my change, my growth? Not just my change. It's not like I'm changing who I am. It's changing the way I live. It's changing... I'm a follower of Christ. I'm becoming more like Jesus, my Savior, my King, my Ruler. So how is that happening? How does the church help me grow? I'm being matured, and I'm being stabilized by both the unity and the diversity of the church. Look with me at verse 2 of chapter 4. Paul writes, So what does this worthy life look like? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient. Bearing with one another in love. Yikes. <laughs> so there's an assumption behind that bearing with one another in love. If I got to bear with somebody, that kind of means that I have a disagreement. Like that I don't see things eye to eye with everybody. That's kind of okay. I know that things, oh. But like, that's real life. And we have to bear with one another in love. Verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. You notice in the next couple of verses how many times he says one? Yeah. One body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We're supposed to make every effort to pursue unity. Let me encourage you to make every effort this week as we are coming to Sunday when we will share the cup and the bread together to make every effort that you are pursuing unity both with people that are, are your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church but don't neglect the people that you live with that are your brothers and sisters in Christ that are your church so make every effort because we are being matured and stabilized by the unity. But verse 7 says, But in contrast to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. So God, or so Christ, gave grace to different people. Not, not more grace or less grace. What he's saying is God gave this gracious gift of X, Y, or Z to somebody, and God gave a different gracious gift of X, Y, or Z to somebody else. That means you and I are all uniquely gifted. You and I are all unique and uniquely designed to be the masterpiece that God is shaping you to be to contribute to the life of the church. Look at verse 11. He says, So Christ himself gave 
different types of ministries, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? To equip his people for works of service. So that means that we're being equipped, we're being matured to actually go do stuff, not to just sit and pay people to do stuff. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14. That was the unity. Now listen to the stability. Then, so when we reach this unity, then we will no longer be like infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is our head. So, how does the church contribute to my growth in godliness? Through the church, I become more mature. Through the church, I become more stabilized so that I'm not whiff-waffling. I'm not flip-flopping as John Kerry did or whoever that was. We're not up and down like yo-yos, but we are stable and sure. Number two, we are called and equipped by the church to live lives of radical distinction. We are called we are called by the church and we are equipped by the church to live lives of radical distinction. And this is a huge section. <clears throat> we just got done talking about the fact that we are being equipped to be mature for service stabilized. And that equipping doesn't just have that component. It has a component, an element of we live lives that are radically different than the world in which we live. Radical distinction. Listen as I read. I encourage you to follow along. I'll try to tell you the verses as I go. Verse 17, I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. So Paul is calling the church to a change, and that happens in our lives, in our church. Every Sunday, we're called to change. We're called to not live like the world in which we live. And then Paul appeals to our union with Christ. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your formal way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like Christ in true righteousness and holiness. This makes it all possible. We share this bond of being united in Christ and in His church, and with that bond, we have the capability of living lives of radical distinction. So what does that life of radical distinction look like? Verse 25. Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. So we're marked by honesty, and we are honest with one another. Verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your anger. Yikes. We're self-controlled. We're generous. We work to be generous so we don't steal. We don't steal other people's stuff. We work our tails off so that we can share what we have with others. 
We edify with our speech. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Is your speech building each other up? Is it contributing to your friend's maturity and stability? Or is your speech just like the Gentiles? Or is your speech marked by radical distinction? We should be marked by forgiveness, verses 31 and 32. Get rid of all this hate, essentially is what he's saying. Bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Get rid of that junk. In contrast, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. How? Just as Christ, in Christ, God forgave you. Don't you think just if I stopped right there, marked by honesty, self-control, generosity, edification, forgiveness, that's what the church ought to be like. If the world looks at that, wow. We should be marked by these kind of qualities. Lives of radical distinction. Chapter 5. Follow God's example. In other words, imitate God. How so? Walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How did Christ love for, love us? He loved by sacrificing himself for our good. He gave himself up, Paul defines it. So there's a sacrificial love. Then there's holistic purity. I mean holistic and inside purity and outside purity. Look at verse 3 of chapter 5. There must not be even a hint, not even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And then later on he describes people that are idolatry or that are improper, that do have hints of sexual immorality, that do talk foolishly, that they are idolaters. They are worshipers, not of God, but of themselves. So we must be have holistic purity, both inside purity and outside purity. Going down to verse 8. Our lives are marked by a difference, an obvious difference. We are to live as children of light. Light is marked by goodness, and righteousness and truth, verse 9 says. Verse 10, we find out what pleases the Lord. We live for God, not for self. Our agenda is for Him, not for us. Verse 15, we live wisely. We know the Word, we understand it, and then we apply it to everyday life. We're filled with the Spirit, which a few weeks ago we defined something to this effect, that our lives reflect the character of the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. We're thankful people, verse 20. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. 
And we see this fleshed out even in our family relationships and with relationships with everyone. Verse 21 says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He's saying, everybody, submit to each other. There's a mutual submission. In the context of husbands and wives, he says, because this the husband and wife relationship reflects the or displays the relationship of the gospel of Christ his church. He says Christ's purpose is to make her his bride holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any blemish, but holy and blameless. Person that lives a life of radical distinction. I don't know how I got to that one. Person who lives a life of radical distinction allows others to help us change. I don't mean, again, change in a a weird sense. I mean changes in a sanctifying sense. We allow others, we welcome others to help us change, and we are ourselves being changed. We are being sanctified. Chapter 6, verse 4, we are passing on our biblical worldview to others. Verse 7 of chapter 6, we wholeheartedly serve. Think about that for just a second. The book of Ephesians says, how does the church help us grow? It helps us by being, by helping us be mature. It helps equip us so that we can live this kind of life. Is this the kind of life that it, that is present in CBC? Is this the kind of life that is present in you? I haven't said it. I haven't elaborated. I haven't explained. I've just read the clear text and pages of, of God's word. How does your life compare to that? Is it a life that's marked by radical distinction? And then lastly, how does the church help us grow? It's through this. We persevere together in the gospel in the face of Satan's attacks. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So stand your ground. Stand firm. And we do it together, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all of God's people. You and I pray for each other and we stick it out together as we persevere in the gospel. So, if I can get back to my notes again. We need each other. Oh. I don't know what's happening. Man, where did I go? Okay. This went backwards. There we go. I really went backwards. Alright? I mean, if what Paul has said in his work in, in Ephesians is true, if the way I've at least attempted to communicate it is 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 faithful to what he had to say, we need each other. You cannot be a believer and grow in isolation. You can't sit home and watch Joel Osteen. Well, you certainly can't watch Joel Osteen. But you can't sit home and isolate yourselves from other believers. You absolutely need 
other people, and not just other people as casual acquaintances. We need each other in real life, intentional sorts of vulnerable relationships where you know me and I know you so that I can speak truth to you and you can speak truth to me. Because the reality is that we're all blind if we're, if we're honest. We're all blind to our own sin. I can't see my own sinfulness the way someone else can see it. Because I'm not an, an objective observer. <laughs> Right? I want to, I, I'm proud, so I want to see everything in the best, po- I want to spin everything in the best possible way. But others have the capability of seeing what you can't. They have the ability to see what, where you're blind. So we need each other if we're going to grow. So, are you attached to a local church in an active and an enduring way? Or are you merely a spectator? You come in, You sit down, you might sing the songs, you think Ken's got a great message, and then you you leave. Are you active? Are you participating in the life of the church? Are you committed? Because remember, we're united to Christ and his people. And when we join a local church, whether we call it membership or not, whatever we want to call it, we must have an enduring attachment to those people. Because we're not committing to... Ken's style of preaching or the cool things they have for our kids. Those are all nice things, but we're committing to Wanda and to Pete and to Troy and to Linda because we're committing to each other because the church is people, right? Not a bunch of cool programs. So are you attached to a local church in an active and enduring way? Number two, do you have close friends that can see you more clearly than you can see you and are willing to tell you the truth about what they see in your life? Do you have close friends like that? Those close friends most likely will be coming from the church. I mean, Titus 2, for instance, is a beautiful picture of how believers ought to relate. Younger women and older women. This isn't like click, you know, like all the 20-somethings hang out. And all the old senior saints, they hang out, you know. The golden years or whatever, I don't know. They have all these, the golden gems is what they call it. What you become a saint? I guess so, right? But, it, but, it's, but it's older women, wiser women, senior saints like Wanda maybe, hanging out with people that are younger and helping them grow. That's how growth happens. That's how God has designed it. God has not designed isolation to be the means of spiritual growth. So then, number three, how does your life, honestly, if you as best as you can assess your life, how does your life compare to the picture of what Paul has painted? A life of radical distinction. A life that is being matured and stabilized. A life that is persevering in the gospel against Satan's attacks as we lean heavily on each other. This is the picture of of the church. My prayer, and I hope that I, I can live that life, and I hope that we all can. And I need you, and you need me, and we all need each other to do this kind of thing. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have not created us to be um, isolated people. You have not created us to be all on our own. Um, 
yes, you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit. You've given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Your, your word is sufficient. Yet, you have given us each other and we need each other. We need that mutual um, uh, brotherly love, that one another um, connection so that we can be who you are making us to be. We need each other, and I thank you that you've given us to each other. Help us to not isolate, but to but to find people and to be part in an active and enduring way of this local church. In your name we pray. Amen.